0: everybody, welcome to another episode of Repeater. Uh, My name is Evan. And I'm Pat. And today, joining us on the show is host of the Heat Rocks podcast, Oliver Wang. What's going on, Oliver?
1: How's it going? Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. We're really excited.
0: Yeah. Um, For anyone new to the show, we, we host this show where we talk to people about songs that mean a lot to them. And so today we're going to be talking to Oliver about a particular track Um, but before we get into that we're just gonna talk about some stuff that we've been listening to recently. Uh, Pat do you want to start us off?
1: Yeah um, man I've had so much music in my life in the past couple days. I went to a wedding so that meant I had a ridiculous amount of like pop music go through my brain. I danced a lot to the Spice Girls this weekend so that was fun. But um something that I really wanted to bring up was uh I don't know if you saw this but Julian Baker, Phoebe Bridgers and Lucy Dacus or Dacus have a new like trio that they're doing. They put out an or are putting out an EP uh under the name Boy Genius. Uh it's very good. It's spooky in the way that they're all kind of spooky but like the lyrics are incredible. <laughs> um and like they have these songs that have just these beautiful harmonies that are kind of like sung in the round where like they're all sort of trading Mm -hmm. the lines uh it's very good there's a song on it called bite the hand i believe uh and it's wonderful and i think you should all check it out
0: cool i would love to do that um i'm gonna do sort of a little bit of a almost non-musical cheat uh, today, but Joe Firestone, uh, previous guest on the show, just put out a new stand-up album that was recorded at Union Hall. But she, it's called The Hits, and she put out the album with Will Butler, but Will Butler of Arcade Fire, doing like accompaniment <laughs> on a bunch of songs. So he's basically like somewhere on the stage, I think, with uh, a synthesizer and a, maybe a mellotron and some <laughs> other like gadgets. And he just plays music before and after and during some of her her pieces uh and i'll shout out the the final track on the album which is called i have been there and will plays some cool kind of uh stuff over the whole the whole bit but it's a hilarious album uh joe is one of the funniest people in new york i don't know if the whole nation has heard of her yet but she's hilarious and uh it's a really cool album and kind of having like a legit musician accompanying her on it does sort of add this whole different flavor to the stand-up special that I think is a little bit different. It makes perfect sense. So, yeah, it's great. Oliver, uh, what have you been listening to recently?
2: My friend Hua put me up on this. I guess he's a rapper originally from Durham, North Carolina, uh, but he lives out in Los Angeles now by the name of G. Yamazawa. He is Japanese-American by heritage And he's got a song that's been out for a while now, I'm I'm certainly late coming to it, called North CAC, which is slang for North Carolina. And it's really good, you know, partly as someone who has spent years, decades, really, thinking and writing and searching for different Asian American hip hop artists, I'm always delighted when I, number one, discover one that I hadn't heard of before, and number two, one who was really exceptionally good. And I feel like G. Amazawa, whose background, interestingly enough, is from spoken word before he he turned uh, to, toward rapping. Uh, you know, dude can flow. He's really creative lyrically. He has a social and political dimension to what he's doing. But mostly, he just executes really well, especially on this track. And one of the things that I just discovered recently is I have a thirteen-year-old daughter. And she she naturally gets turned on to the music that I listen to simply because we spend time in the car together and these things. And she has actually added the same song, North CAC, onto her sort of um, get hype playlist. And so uh, I always like it when she gets turned on to stuff that I like because as most people who have 13-year-olds can attest to, they don't like admitting that they like the same music their parents like. So <laughs> this was a, a case where we're both... Rockin' Out to North CAC by G. Yamazawa.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, that's great. A couple episodes ago, I was talking about how my dad used to play the Beach Boys all the time, and I always mm. thought it was kind of lame dad rock, and then you know, finally sat down and listened to pet sounds and had to come to terms with the fact that my teenage self was wrong. <laughs> but also was snobby, so... <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, the Beach Boys had some jams. Brian Wilson sort of knew what he was doing around the studio, at least in that era.
0: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, But what song did you want to talk with us about today?
2: When you initially asked me for a song, and anyone who knows me knows how difficult a question that is to pose to me, because as a DJ, as a music writer, etc., it's never easy for me just to pick one song. I just want to pick all of them. Uh, I actually had sent you three options and you flipped it back to me and basically made me choose. So the one I went with is one of my all-time favorite Latin soul boogaloo songs. This is from 1968 from an artist, uh, Bobby Matos, who unfortunately just passed away earlier this year. But it's a song called Nadi Baila Como Yo, and my apologies to any native Spanish speakers out there because I'm sure I just butchered it. (laughs) It loosely translates into um, nobody dances like me, so it's 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 a braggadocio song about how good the singer is when it comes to various Latin dance styles, which on this song I believe include the wawung, the and the uh, son All
0: right, very cool, very cool. Uh, this is now the portion of this the show where Pat and I try to guess why you chose this song, even though we know it was a very <laughs> difficult discussion. And I mean, your laugh is indicative of I think. The deep, deep hole we're about to try to climb out of, (laughs) because this is yeah, this one's probably fairly opaque to us at this point. But uh, Pat, do you have a? Would you venture a guess?
1: I mean, I will say that getting those three songs in the initial email was wonderful because it gave me a whole bunch of new stuff to listen to, but also narrowing it down is going to help me guess. I think Mm -hmm. this is also definitely just stalling while my brain works. Um, I think that you found this song. um, You were crate diving in, in, let's say, Detroit. And um, maybe you were going through a boogaloo phase and you were looking for that one you know, that one 7-inch or 45 that you were going to spin at some event, and uh, the guy at the record store was like, you got to look for this one, and, you know, maybe you... I think, what, I think what, like, the final nail in the coffin on this record was was you saw the song title and what it translated to, and you were like, yes, that is me, <laughs> and that is why you picked this song.
0: Okay. Uh, my guess would be probably something similar in the vein of, let's say, uh, the college version of yourself is going down a bunch of different rabbit holes and kind of gets into a Latin jazz one. Um, and maybe there's those, there's a couple artists you latch onto that are maybe you're, um your entryway. And you have one of those days where you're talking to one of your good friends, another like music nerd, about something you've been listening to recently in that field, and then they mention Bobby Matos, uh, and act astounded that you have not heard of him. <laughs> and so you immediately go and you get what I believe I think is his first album, at least that was released widely, uh, and that becomes this this kind of standout uh in that experience of you know music exchange and also probably just the exploration of uh latin jazz in your world that's a real roundabout way of saying i have no idea <laughs> but those are the guesses. How, how
2: often how often are the two of you correct in your your prognoscate your prognis- yeah, prognostications here
0: i think between the two of us we might have like a 20 percent 25 percent success rate at least being like close where someone's like, yeah,
1: that was more or less what it was. we hit within the ballpark yeah. sometimes. that's not bad actually all set I would say yeah um it is
2: it is maybe certainly the second one I think comes closer to it um, though neither one is is way way off um, I'm assuming this is now where I tell you how I actually did come across it or yes. why I picked
1: it. Yes, that would be great. I got into
2: Boogaloo music, oh my God, at this point, probably around early 2000s, might have been 2001, 2002. And a lot of that uh, is owed to someone who I used to DJ with a lot when I lived in the Bay Area, Vinny Esparza. And I really credit Vinny, along with the record store that he used to work in, or maybe still does work in, in San Francisco, called The Groove Merchant. And The Groove Merchant is owned by cool Chris Veltri, who's also a good friend of mine. And between Vinny and Chris, they're the ones who really put Boogaloo and Latin soul music in general, or just Latin music, period, put the whole multi-genres onto the map for me. Because prior to that, I listened primarily to soul funk and hip-hop music, and Latin was something that was, especially this kind of New York style of Afro-Cuban Latin music, was not something that I had much familiarity familiarity around at all. But once I was introduced to it, it just became and has remained one of my favorite things to listen to, certainly one of my favorite things to DJ to, um, even though it's not, you know, the people's on people's dance floor recognition of Latin songs really varies depending on where you are geographically and uh, Boogaloo, I don't want to say is completely an acquired flavor. It's not like Norwegian death metal in that respect, <laughs> but it's not something that necessarily goes over as easily, for example, as a Motown song or '90s hip hop. So it you know it does it helps to have a little bit of familiarity or having grown up listening to some of the bigger hits like uh, Joe Cuba's "Bang Bang" or Pete Rodriguez's "I Like It Like That," which some people this summer might have heard a version of, because Cardi B ends up either sampling or interpolating the song in one of her big hits from the summer. But in any case, the way that My Latin Soul, this Bobby Matos album, landed on my radar was probably either through Vinny or through Chris, and My Latin Soul is one of the, not by any means, it's not certainly one of the more obscure albums, but it is one of the more sought-after ones, and so... Um, you know, people who are chasing after this, you can expect to pay anywhere from about a hundred dollars, give or take. So it's, it's, it's sought after enough within the collector's community that it's not something that you just necessarily find lying around, but I'm trying to remember. So I know that's where the, where I, where I discovered the album. I want to say that I was actually put on this particular song several years later because it's not, it wasn't one of the big hit songs off the album. Uh, But I might have heard it through the Boogaloo Assassins, which is an LA-based Boogaloo group that plays classic New York-style Afro-Cuban Boogaloo music, but again, doing it out here in LA. And I want to say that this might have been a song that was in their rotation. And when I heard it, my first thought is, what the hell is this? And when I found out, I realized, oh, I've, I've had this on LP for years now. I just never bothered to check out track, you know, whatever, B2 or wherever it is on the album. Um so I felt a little bit sheepish about it but regardless it is Oh my god I'm mean, just trying to think of the ways in which I love this song. I think and if I'm rambling here you guys want to cut in like by all means feel free to go ahead. <laughs> no no no. Um, uh, we're loving please this. Please
0: tell us why like I mean what do you love about it?
2: You start with how it opens. And this is something where I'm not that I'm not that well musically trained and so I had to ask a few friends of mine who were piano players what, how exactly do they make that opening set of piano uh, piano notes, piano chords happen? And it is a, if I'm not mistaken, a 145 chord, which is a really, really classic chord progression in Latin music. And you, you find this in, in rock and roll, which uh, in, in a lot of uh, 50s and 60s uh, music across the board in the, in the United States draws on this 145 chord. And, but it's incredibly, incredibly common in Latin music. And I guess what, what Matos is doing in here is he's actually doubling up the chords on on both hands on a piano, which is what gives it this big resonant tone. And there's something about that that's incredibly groovy. It sounds, it has this enormous sound to it. And just from jump, the song is already just luring you, luring you in. And especially from a dancing point of view, I just find the whole thing irresistible. And what's great is that the song brings back that same exact chord progression at the first hook slash chorus. And so if you didn't get enough of it at the very beginning of the song, you just need to wait, I, I guess, what, maybe 16 bars in and you get it again. And I just love the return of it and it just giving you more of what you
1: want. Yeah, that song, it opens up so strong and... There's something about that chord progression that also kind of almost feels like the way sampling gets used. It's such a clean chord progression that's just sort of simply placed that works as this really nice bass structure to the song that by the time you're like in it, it's you know, you build this like strong song that I can only imagine what it's like to listen to when you're out on a dance floor with a bunch of people. And I think unlike maybe more 70s salsa classics it's a song
2: that you can dance to without having to necessarily know how to dance a ko or dance salsa because it is it has more of a maybe not an exact classic four uh four 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 beat to it but it's something where if you can just dance to soul music you can dance to this and of course Bobby, at the time in which he recorded this song, this era of Latin music coming out of New York, or just coming out of the United States in general, is specifically designed to both take elements of classic Afro-Cuban music from earlier eras, so mambos, uh, charangas, wajiras, etc., and the Boogaloo is an adaptation of that and merging all of those older Latin styles with emergent American R&B music, and so... I think one of the most famous ways it's it's been described is boogaloo was cha-cha with a backbeat. And this is I think one great example of that. And so from a latin from a DJ's point of view, these kinds of latin songs work on dance floors where you don't need again, you don't need people to know how to dance salsa steps and that that can be intimidating for folks who don't know that. This is a song that can work both ways. If you know how to dance uh, dance Latin, do do Latin dance steps, great. If you don't, you can still do your you know back and forth shuffle to it and it still works.
1: Well, yeah, that's why I really appreciate this because I need the songs that allow me to dance without knowing how to dance.
0: Yeah, and I was going to say kind of going back to what you're talking about with a lot of this kind of music in general, it's it takes some amount of being informed about it maybe to really appreciate it. And that's something that what you're describing now, it's like this song is something you could conceivably throw on at a party, you know, of people that don't necessarily know the genre well at all, and they can still really enjoy it and really get down with it, which is a powerful thing.
2: Absolutely. I had to correct myself too, and this is just further adds to my embarrassment around my history with the song. I just looked at the track listing. This is song A1, so I don't know how I managed to miss this when I first bought the album, or maybe I just knew of songs off the album that didn't have it, but in any case, Bobby purposely put this as the lead cut off the album, so it would have been pretty unavoidable to anyone who even bothered to to check it out, and I just forgot all these years later that it, that it was uh, the first song on the album. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: Well... I guess that does still lead into a question I had, um, regardless of whether or not this track was A1 or, you know, B2 or whatever. Um, just knowing your history with records and how many records you actually have, I'm wondering what your process is, like when you go out and you buy a bunch of records and then you come home. Do you listen to them all all the way through, or are you just kind of doing a random sampling or going after the tracks that you've heard about?
2: Well, with something like an LP, the first thing I would do would be just to needle jump track by track. And the habit that I've gotten into is because I sleeve everything that I buy in, in a plastic sleeve... I'll have a, a sharpie on hand, and if there's tracks that I like, I'll make a notation on the back cover, usually wherever the track listing is. And you know, sometimes I use just little dots to basically to indicate how much I like a song. So something like uh, something like this track, for example. Um, would have gotten three dots, which means that if I'm ever in the future looking at the album and I don't remember the track listing or the songs specifically, that guide will tell me, oh, this is definitely a song that I like, as opposed to, let's say, a one dot indicates this is a song that's worth at, at, at minimal at minimum, sorry, this is a song that at minimum is worth digitizing, but it may not be necessarily a barn burner. Uh, and then I guess two dots is for songs that somewhere fall in between. I think usually it's one or three that I have just kind of a two grade notion. Um, and then based on how I notate that, if it's a, an LP that I've gotten in for the first time, I will try to uh, bring it upstairs to my office where I have a, a, a turntable set up just to, do di- uh, just to do digitizing. And at some point, I'll sit down and digitize specifically the tracks that i've notated and it does mean that things can fall between the cracks so it might be that on that initial needle skip you know track a4 was not something that immediately caught my attention it's going to also probably be a song that i'm going to avoid digitizing because i don't want to digitize the entire album it just takes too long But it could be that years later, I'll discover, oh, my God, A4 was incredible. I just happened to needle jump to the wrong point of it and didn't realize how good it is. So there's certainly some risk involved here, but I'm balancing the desire to have select songs at my ready in terms of stuff that's been digitized. And therefore, I can use to DJ or I can put um, into a playlist or I can listen to. Uh, But with time efficiency in terms of I don't want to spend my time digitizing the entire LP, especially if realistically, I'm never going to listen to A4.
0: Sure. That's such a well thought out and like balanced attack because I, I know like myself, I'm such a completionist that I, I think I would just avoid, the, avoid the, the mission of like digitization entirely if I knew that I wasn't going to do it wholesale. Um, and it's such a, having like just a bit of a system is such a helpful and smart way to approach it. So that you're actually, you know, getting the stuff you want, getting yourself familiarized with those albums, um, but not, you know, not spending an absolutely unreasonable amount of time doing it.
2: The one thing, too, it occurs to me in, in thinking through, because I never really actually had to describe what my system is. I think you're the first person to ever ask me this. With the needle jumping, a song like this one in particular, with um, with Baila Como Yo!, What's notable is that two-thirds of the way through the song, so I mentioned that at the first chorus, they bring back those the intro chord progression, but at the second chorus, the song shifts from what was a mid-tempo huawanko, which is one Afro-Cuban style, it then shifts into a completely different one that's known as a son montuno, which is much slower, much groovier. And if one were just needle jumping, you might have landed on one half or one third of the song or the other and come away with a completely different impression of what the tempo was like and what the feel of the song is like. And this is another thing that I just love about the tune is that it does have this complete dramatic shift. It's not jarring in any way because it still works in the flow, but they're two different tempo. I mean, they're literally different tempos and it's just a different feel. And I love the idea that Bobby set out to have this song that just dimensionally flips itself two thirds of the way through and then ends up in a completely different sonic and rhythmic space than where it begins.
1: Yeah, it's when the tempo does that shift, it's such a cool thing to happen because it's both unexpected and feels right. Exactly. And, and yeah, and it's such an exciting discovery. And you're right, like if you're just sort of skipping through tracks, I understand how that's easy to miss uh cuz something that I like to listen to or things I like to listen to are often like very long songs like 20 30 minute tracks mm-hmm. um which are notoriously hard to figure out what the good stuff is in there um <laughs> <laughs> but I'm wondering since you have a record player in your office when you come across a track like this, or are there is this the kind of song that you just pick up the needle and then drop it at the beginning of the track again? Um, I would
2: love to say yes, but, but realistically, what I would do is I would f- let it finish digitizing and just replay the track on my computer rather than physically needle drop it. And I think part of it too, and this is more subconscious than anything else, is it also just reduces the wear on the record. And I'm not really anywhere near that anal retentive, but I think part of me is if I cannot drag my stylus through a piece of vinyl too many times, maybe that'd be better, especially if I have something that to me sounds just the same. Uh, and I should make it clear, this is something that normally I'm not supposed to admit because I'm always supposed to say the party line, which is that vinyl sounds better. Maybe it's just through years of DJing, my my earbuds uh, are just not, my ear canals have, have worn down. I can't really tell the difference that much. If you were to give me an A to B side comparison between something played off of a, a turntable, off of vinyl, as opposed to, let's say, a decent quality digital file, I don't know if I would really tell the difference. And I know there are people out there who swear they can tell. I'm just going to put it, I'm just going to confess right here, I am not one of those people. It all sounds kind of the same to me.
0: Yeah. Well, we appreciate you being vulnerable with us. That's very nice. <laughs> I mean, I still
2: I still love vinyl, but but what I love about it, I think the acoustic qualities of it is really one of the smallest dimensions to what it is that I enjoy about the 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 physicality, the materiality of the record and its dimensions and its, its shape and its feel, there's a lot of tactile elements to it, but the actual sound it produces, I think is quite secondary in terms of what it is about vinyl that I love.
0: I mean, this is a good a good little thing to talk about because why, you know, like in recent years, vinyl has had a, a bit of a comeback, right? And I think that people are rediscovering what makes vinyl so great. Um, and I think initially, though, a lot of people thought it was going to be like this full move to digital. But really, almost what we found is that CDs died or are, you know, are being mm-hmm. killed, but vinyl has actually kind of had a bit of a resurgence. And it's obviously not because it's the one way to get music. We obviously have way easier ways to get music now. So why do you think that vinyl has become the, the format to have physical copies of music on
2: i think there's a lot of theories as to why that might be the case one of the ones that i would put more stock into is and this applies not just to vinyl but to a lot of things that have a a literal physicality and as as i said earlier materiality to that so food for example like why is food culture so big now in in comparison to perhaps where it was 20 years ago and. One of the theories I've I've seen about this, which again I I put some stock into, is that at a time at which so much of what we consume, figuratively or literally, comes to us through the ether, right? There's no physicality to it. You want to listen to a song via streaming, you want to watch something. None of these things have any kind of material, physical presence anymore. It then highlights those things that still actually have tangibility. So you can't really rep. Well, you can't replicate the act of of ingesting food, putting something in your mouth. like That is something that no digital experience can replicate. And obviously records are different because you're not imbibing, you're not eating them. I don't recommend that, it's a bad (laughs) idea. But there's something about being able to put your hands on a recording at a time in which so much of recorded music is available to us in this infinite playlist that again, just magically arrives to us through the air. The fact that there's something still physical about the the record, I think, is, is really important in terms of uh, the ability to just physically lay hands on it. And beyond that, though, I think it does also just come back to, and I think about this a lot, just the, the very pleasing symmetrical dimensions of an LP, 12 by 12, which is big enough to be this, this canvas that people can use as a piece of art, and certainly people do. Um, unlike the CD, which... Its compactness is what makes it convenient or did make it convenient during its heyday, but the CD just doesn't have the same physical pleasing dimensions or, or visual aesthetics to it because of its size. Again, in contrast, the LP is, it's big, but it's not unwieldy, and it's something where once you have it in your hand and you can look at it and you can flip it over and all of these things, I think there's something about that tangible connection, which is hard to replicate and it's something that again in an age in which so much of what we consume or interact with doesn't actually have any kind of physicality to it at all there's something very reassuring about it um and i think the other thing to point out that for the better part of of the 20th century so certainly not if you're millennial but anyone that's older than that Records were the dominant way in which you received music. It wasn't like there was a competing medium. For over 50 years, if you wanted to listen to music, you bought a record. There were no cassettes, no eight tracks, no CDs, no dats. You bought a record. And I think the fact that the enduring format of it says perhaps something about whatever it is that, that the magical quality of it allowed it to, to stay around for not just a generation, but for multiple generations. It was the way in which recorded music existed. And I think the fact that it's made a comeback, again, maybe says something to the reasons why it had that longevity to begin with.
1: Yeah, I had never actually taken the time to consider how few years streaming has been a thing compared to just physical media as how people were receiving music. And there is something really interesting about kind of the information overload we get with Spotify or Apple Music or, you know, whatever the other countless streaming services. Um, Mm -hmm. And there is something really interesting about, like, you know, going to somebody's parents' basement and, uh, you know, finding a pile of records from people you've never heard of, but, you know, maybe the thing in common is you know, the record label, or where they were recorded, or, you know, maybe you see a performer on there that you recognize. And there is something very, like you were saying, the size of an album, an LP, is way easier to read than a CD. There's a lot of art that gets lost when you shrink it down to the size of a CD. And when you can have it at 12 by 12, you can kind of really nerd out over the details. Uh, And that's something that I genuinely love.
2: And I think this speaks to that, the same point too, is that there's just much more that is contained on a record in terms of, I don't mean in terms of music because the format is limited to X amount of minutes, but just in terms of what you, you on a sensory level that you take in, there is the cover art. There are the liner notes. There are photos of the artist perhaps there is the track listing. So there are font choices, there are photo choices, there are artistic direction choices, And this doesn't even get to just the physicality of this of the circular disc itself, and you know I guess you could talk about the psychology of the wheel or of the circle (laughs) and how that factors into you know ancient cosmologies and the ways in which we find the circle to be this this kind of magical shape and all these different things. So the record just from a sensory point of view, there's just so much there to take in, and I think you you see this. Anytime someone is walking down a sidewalk and they pass a bin of records, and that urge to just reach out and start to flip through it, and it's not that they necessarily expect to find anything, but there's something alluring, I think, about the record, which it, and I've written about this in the past, that it calls for our touch. And the thing about how a record is played, which is very much unlike the music that we listen to on Spotify or wherever, is it requires that tactile physical interaction like you cannot play a record unless you can physically pick it up place it on a turntable pick up the needle and then put it on the record all of that requires you to actually physically interact with it in a way that 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 experience is largely absent i guess outside of pushing a button on a touch screen in order to start a song, uh, off of a playlist. And again, with that song, what you don't get is you don't get any of the visual dimensions that I'm talking about outside of a, a line of text written in nine point font on a computer screen.
1: <laughs> exactly. Um, there's an artist I'm blanking on their name. I believe they're on the temporary residence label. Uh, and they put out a record. I want to say two, three years ago. I'll look it up later. We'll put it in the notes. Um, But they did something I thought was really interesting, which was the paper in the center of the record on the label. They Mm -hmm. had um, little markers, kind of just drawn on, like you know, maybe every four or five degrees, um, with the instructions that you should take a razor and just kind of make a little inscription along one of those lines, so that when Mm -hmm. you drop the rec, because it was gonna. It was a closed loop at the end. And so the idea was that if you did a line on each one of those, if you made a cut on each one of those lines, you would get like a 4-4 four, four beat or you know maybe a 3-4 beat or whatever. And essentially the artist was kind of trying to encourage like, here, this is my record, but go in and make your own beat out of this.
2: That's really clever. On the flip side, I just could never take a razor to a piece of vinyl, because I've seen too many cases where people have accidentally, or maybe not that accidentally, taken box gutters to sides of vinyl, and it's just the the worst sight and feel in the world. So even if that was the instruction, I don't think I could do it. (laughs) I'll just watch a YouTube video of somebody else doing it, and then I can have the enjoyment vicariously. (laughs) There you go. That makes
1: sense.
0: Something you described earlier uh, that I was just thinking of, like another reason why vinyl is special is vinyl has this ability and kind of what you're talking about with the rubbernecking as you walk by a box of vinyl on the street. It sort of has this allure. And I don't know if it's always like through our own experiences or through, you know, almost like the mythology of records, but it has this allure that you're going to find something that, is like a hidden gem or you're going to find something that other people don't know about. There's this real almost quality I think to buying records that feels like there's a scarcity to it and that's something that mm-hmm. I think a lot of digital music as it is like so wonderful to have so many songs at our fingertips, but it makes a, it makes a lot of what we listen to a lot more it feels a lot more disposable. And that feeling that you've stumbled upon something that requires stumbling, you know, that like you weren't, it wasn't gonna be served up to you, um, or it's not just whatever you knew to search for, is a really kind of special feeling. I think probably in anything um, one loves or values. And if music's that thing, then, you know, records are really gonna serve, they're really gonna scratch that itch of like, oh man, uh, I found this album I never expected to find and it was sitting mm. right there. So I got to—I better stop and look into those bins or uh, I better swing into this store just to see what I might find. It's a cool feeling.
2: Yeah, I think that's certainly true. I think it's also people who are looking for markers from their own lives in terms of they're looking for their favorite artists from when they were 13 or 14 and, and maybe it'll turn up there. So I think what we're looking for in those bins can be a lot of different things. But again, I think that the fact that it requires you to have that physical interaction, the moment you touch it, the the, the next impulse is, well, then I want to go to what's behind that. Well, if I'm going to go there, let me keep flipping and flipping and flipping. And so, and then that's how you lose half a day in a a record store.
0: (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I've definitely had those moments where I flip, see something interesting, and it's only like a third of the way through the stack. I'm like, well, if I... stop here I'm gonna miss something else uh and then I've gone through the rest and found an album that like was that album in high school that changed my life or yeah uh so it is obsessive but I will flip through every every record that's in that store to find what I want
0: what's the um speaking kind of on this this uh genre and the world that you know this song exists in um, yeah. for the uninitiated, do you have any good, I mean, like, I hate to, I hate to ask you to list anything because it's always so tough, but are there any like excellent jumping off points that people just have to know about?
2: Oh, sure. I, I actually named two of them earlier. And yeah. if, if you will forgive me, like a very condensed history of Boogaloo music Boogaloo came out of New York City, uh, in particular East Harlem, Spanish Harlem, in the mid-1960s, and it was led by a generation of largely American-born and raised uh, artists, uh, musicians who were the children of immigrants from places like Cuba, especially though, especially New York City, we're talking about um, the kids of Puerto Rican immigrants, Dominican uh, immigrants, and this for them, Boogaloo was their way of creating a sound for themselves that took elements of their parents' music. So this would be the classic Afro-Cuban and Latin uh, tra- styles I was mentioning earlier. So the mambo, for example, which was of course huge in the 1950s, but combining it with doo music and R&B music, which as kids growing in New York City, this is what they were excited to listen to because this was their sound. This was their the music of their generation. And so Boogaloo basically fused... These two traditions together. it took the Latin instrumentation and some of the chords and some of the the, the rhythms, et cetera, but then merged it with R and B lyrics and vocals and rhythms as well. And that's how it was born. And the, I'm certainly not the first person to make this comparison, but if you think about how hip hop music formed just a few miles north in the South Bronx, a generation or a, a decade later in the 1970s, by taking, funk music and disco uh, and Latin music, all of these things that young people in New York City were listening to in the 1970s and created hip-hop out of it, Boogaloo follows, I think, a very similar trajectory of the music of the teenagers of the, the previous decade wanting to, again, figure out what is our sound, what does what, what belongs to us, and that's where Boogaloo music was born. So it is inherently, inherently a deeply American hybrid music style. and Actually, I would say that all American pop music styles are hybrid. You you can't find one that isn't. So it it, it follows the traditions, I think, of all of the best American music styles where you're talking about jazz or R&B or hip hop. Boogaloo, while nowhere near as popular as these other styles, it comes from the same kind of creative genesis and energy and desire for a gener- a young generation of people to have something that they can call their own, musically speaking. So in any case, where I would suggest people start is the, the, the big giants of the genre would include people like the Joe Cuba Sextet. Their uh, big hit songs would have been Bang Bang is one of them. El Pito, uh, The Whistle, would have been another. Uh, I mentioned Pete Rodriguez. Um, he had a song and hit album called I Like It Like That, and he is certainly one of the key architects of this. Um, Ray Barreto, who is a holdover from an earlier era of Latin jazz artists, but Ray Barretto records some just incredible Latin soul and Boogaloo albums in this era, including an album called Acid that is one of my, besides this Bobby Matos album, is another one of my all-time favorites. Um, you know, Bobby would have been... Uh, now, again, I don't want to call him obscure, but he would have been more second tier in terms of prominence, in terms of um, the kinds of artists that, that people tend to mention first. He doesn't come necessarily in that initial list, but My Latin Soul is absolutely to me just a classic in the genre and is something and that's been reissued now and it's relatively easy to find if you don't mind having a reissue. Uh, it is as good as any of the albums by the artists that I previously named. But again, if you're starting from zero, I would start with Joe Cuba. I would start with um, Pete Rodriguez and I would start with Ray Burrito.
1: Fantastic. Yeah, it sounds like we have a lot of listening to get to. Yeah. I'm very excited.
0: Uh, Oliver, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure. If you don't
2: mind me just... Adding one more thing about oh, please, about please. this album in particular, um, I had the the privilege to interview Bobby um, a few years ago when I was doing some research on a label that he had worked with, and one of the things that was surprising to me initially, though I I understood his point later, is that while Bobby understands that or understood, because again he he passed away earlier this year. Bobby understood that people loved My Latin Soul and that it was the one album that he had recorded that is something that people ask him about all the time. But one of the things that the points that he made to me is that he's kind of low key embarrassed about the album because he recorded it when he was really young and just didn't have the same kinds of musical chops that he would develop as he became a a more experienced musician. And so he, he was telling me when he listens to this album, He's just embarrassed by the amateurness of it, and that, as he was telling me, the things that I've recorded since then are just so much better musically. And that, from an from an, the artist's point of view, totally makes sense. Is that if he recorded this album when he was probably maybe in his late teens or early twenties, you know, as opposed to an album that he would have recorded in his forties or fifties? Yeah, the the later albums are probably going to be much more musically sophisticated. But for me, it is that the rawness this song is not particularly complicated like this in terms of the the arrangement but its simplicity i think is part of its appeal and that there is this raw energy to this song to this album to boogaloo in general where a lot of older latin musicians turn their nose down on it because they said this is too simple like you don't the, the the rhythmic complexity is missing here from what you would hear in let's say a mambo track But they sort of missed the point it is its simplicity its accessibility is what made it popular it's what allowed it to cross over and so every time i hear this song i think about the ways in which bobby understands why people love it but is also kind of embarrassed by it and if he were still alive i would just reassure him we understand that this is you at an early stage but what you did then was extraordinary, and it gives people pleasure. And you should be okay with the fact that people like it so much, even if it's not for you. You feel like it's at the top of your craft.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, you know, good perspective <laughs> to have on it. And uh, and I can definitely understand that. I was um, I've been reading. I don't know if you're familiar at all with the kind of late sixties, early seventies wave of. Uh, country rock as it was dubbed but I've been reading a book about the Flying Burrito Brothers and one thing that kind of the surviving members of that band will say is sort of how how unrefined and poor they recorded poorly they recorded that album and it's this blight on a lot of their careers in some ways but for a lot of them it became the signature album of like this whole movement of popularizing rock and country music going together. And so all these people look back on it, all these fans with a very, very positive, you know, view, but they just can't get over how poorly it was mixed and recorded and right. how they can feel how sloppy and kind <laughs> of uh, the instrumentation was and all this stuff. Uh, but I think they understand similarly, you know, why people hold it in such high regard all these years later.
2: Right. And I think this is the difference between being the person making music and being the people listening to the music is that what we get out of it and what we hear in it are vastly different. And that's part of what makes music magical is that the same song can represent so many different things to different people.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Oliver, thank you again for talking with us.
2: My pleasure. Thank you for having me again.
0: Of course. Um, Can you tell people a little bit about uh, the podcast that you host?
2: Sure. We are uh, about to turn one years old. And depending on when this episode airs, maybe we were already past our first anniversary. But Heat Rocks is a podcast hosted by myself and Morgan Rhodes, who is an exceptionally talented music supervisor here in Los Angeles. And every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about one of their favorite albums. And so, for example, in the past, we had. Um, the R&B singer from Atlanta, originally Joy, talking about Betty Davis's. They say I'm different. We had Vernon Reed from Living Color talking about Band of Gypsies by Jimi Hendrix. One of the more recent things that we recorded was with this young R&B artist out of L.A. named Hannah Sidibi talking about Joni Mitchell's Court and Spark, which is an album that was recorded, you know, literally a generation before Hannah was even born. But but you know, every guest brings a different story as to how they discovered these albums what it means to them what influence it's had in their lives or their careers Um, as morgan has described it heat rocks is a podcast that is both about musical discovery and appreciation and i think those two elements the discovery and appreciation is what leads people like you two and myself and morgan and everyone out there who who have these podcasts devoted to music, this is what we're continually searching for and seeking to share is that the power of both discovery and what it is that we find in these these objects uh that that give us so much pleasure and delight,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a
1: wonderful podcast. You should really check it out, thank you,
0: yeah, today I was just listening to the one you did on Boys to Men's Two, and uh man, that's yes, one of those that's w. one of those w. albums for me, I'll tell you. <laughs>
2: I have to say, and I think I even said it in that recording, is I don't know if we've ever laughed as much as we have with any single episode. And it was something about just describing the video for <laughs> Boys to Men's I'll Make Love to You. Everyone in the studio just started un- un- unceasingly cracking up about it, which I still I still love that video. But I get that it's kind of campy. And if you like making fun of early 90s R&B dress styles, there is a wealth of stuff to pick apart in that. But <laughs> Uh, For any of your listeners who've never had the pleasure of watching the I'll Make Love To You video by Boys to Men, stop what you're doing right now and go watch it. And don't be surprised if you want to rush out and get some very narrow sunglasses so that you can peer your eyes above them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I uh, second that recommendation. I think it's a great one. That might be
1: (laughs) the best advice we've ever given on this show.
0: Yeah. All right, Oliver. Thanks so much for talking with us again. All right, guys. Take care. Have a good one. Repeater is hosted by Evan Ford Barden and Patrick Cartelli.
2: This episode was recorded at Magnet Training Center in New York City, where they offer classes in improv, musical improv, sketch writing, storytelling, and more. Find out more at MagnetTheater.com. Visit us online at repeater.show for live dates, hot music tips, and show archives. Theme music by the Sun Lions. Everything else by Love Nest Productions. Welcome to Repeater.